I would say for every scientist and engineering founder out there, please go and do a basic bookkeeping course and financial course. You do need to understand your books and you do need to understand cash flow. And really, that's something that makes you different if you can understand that. Hello, and welcome to the Research Valorization podcast series. My name is Sarah Jabber, Director at UIIN and your host for today. In this episode, we dive into the world of deep tech with Sally Ann Williams, CEO of Cicada Innovations. Supported by four universities as its founding shareholders, Cicada Innovations is bridging lab-to-market gaps and helping shape Australia as a global leader in deep tech. Sally shares the common pitfalls deep tech founders face and how a pragmatic commercial mindset can make all the difference. We hope you enjoy the discussion. I'm very pleased to have our guest today, Sally Ann Williams, who's the CEO of Cicada Innovations, which is Australia's home of deep tech. A little bit about Cicada Innovations, they unlock the power to create the industries and jobs of the future, addressing some of the most pressing global issues that face our world today. And a bit around uh, Sally, while currently the CEO of Cicada Innovations, prior to joining them, she was an executive program manager at Google Australia for 12 years where she was responsible for leading Google's efforts in entrepreneurship and startup engagement, research collaborations with universities, as well as school education and outreach. Welcome, Sally. Really nice to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. In your role at Cicada Innovations, Sally has been the lead supporter of D-Tech startups, translating cutting-edge ideas from the lab to market and paving the road to success in D-Tech entrepreneurship. So Deep tech, it's a very big word, especially apparently in Australia, but also very much so in Europe. Just to kick off the conversation, I'd love to understand a bit more around uh, how Cicada Innovation started and essentially what you do to support deep tech startups. Oh my goodness. Well, that's a great question to kick off and it's quite a big story to unpack, but I'll, I'll try and give you the snapshot and then maybe if there's areas of interest, we can dig into it. So Cicada Innovations is just over 23 years old this year. And we were originally founded with this great vision to revolutionize and reimagine a precinct in Sydney that had been used originally for our rail infrastructure networks. So we're located at South Everly, right next to Redfern Station, for those who want to look it up on a map and, and see where we are. And in this particular precinct area, it's where the actual carriages for our rail networks originally were built in Sydney and New South Wales for Australia. It's where the engines were fitted. And in our building in particular, where Cicada's housed, we have a beautiful old, it's like a giant shed, but it's a really fancy shed. And it is a heritage listed one now. But we have these beautiful old gantries where the engines would come in to the building through our, our front doors and we would lower the engines into the carriages and send them out into the rail network. And so when they were reimagining what could be done in this precinct and what Australia needed and what New South Wales needed to drive our future economy, there was this real vision of could we take from the past and that industrial nature and that sort of infrastructure development and maybe reimagine the future. So we like to think of ourselves now as we were the home of the last industrial revolution. We're certainly the home of the next industrial revolution. And so with that vision in mind, there was a lot of federal government and state government support from the universities and our shareholder universities, but more importantly, from the local council and the people here to come together and actually create a precinct that would be a gathering point and a facilitation place and an intersecting section between industry and academia and research and community and scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs to build businesses of the future. And so 
that kind of was the DNA of how we were created. And 23 years later, we've got an incredible track record of it. Right now in our Sydney site, we have over 45 to 48 businesses, I think, right now, because there's a couple more that moved in this week. So I'm, I'm, my numbers are always a little bit out of date because there's always another resident moving in. Uh, about 48 businesses, and they're doing everything in the deep tech sector from um, in health, they do medical devices, diagnostics, therapeutics, software as a medical device. We have ag tech companies in here looking at innovations on farm and in revolutionizing how we can think about feeding the world into the future and food sustainability. We're the home of the National Space Industry Hub. So we have upstream and downstream space companies. We have quantum companies. We have semiconductor companies. We have new materials companies. We have hydrogen companies. We have, I'm going to have forgotten somebody. I've definitely, oh, we have some companies working on infrastructure. We actually have somebody working ironically or perhaps poetically on rail infrastructure and taking what is essentially dumb infrastructure. So trains that can be 50 or 40 or 30 years old and turning them into smart infrastructure that can actually be avoiding the cost of maintenance and the, the damages and breakdowns and things like that. And so we support those companies here and in our two other sites, Juma down in Melbourne and Westmead at just in in sort of Western Sydney here. We support them with everything that they need, like a a chicken incubator for eggs to, to hatch chickens. We support them with the right environment, with the exact temperature that they need. So a little bit of pressure, a little bit of coaching and mentoring, connections to capital, which when I think about it is the chicken when it's hatched and it's food and it's water and it's sorting itself out, but everything that needs to thrive and survive. And for for deep tech businesses, they are really complex. They have labs, they have manufacturing requirements, they have typically uh, very regulated pathways to market. So we connect them to the resources, the right knowledge systems, the right providers, the right mentoring, basically everything that they'll need at the point in time where they need it to keep progressing through those multiple valleys of death to eventually graduate out and move on and become thriving businesses. And we've helped over 360 odd businesses, thousands of jobs, 1.8 billion raised, I think we're at now that we've contracted. So that's a conservative number, 1.4 billion in exits. But the thing that makes me the happiest is actually a lot of these businesses, it's not about building unicorns, it's about building businesses that thrive and survive and go on to actually reinvest in the architecture of what deep tech businesses is in Australia. So it's an amazing place to be. And we also run a whole bunch of commercialization services as well across Australia for all of those different areas. So we run one for New South Wales Health. We run one for the space sector. We run them for the grains sector and in ag tech. And we have these bespoke programs that are really supporting people that are thinking about bringing something through to market or really focused particularly on solving particular challenges that they have seen and faced either in industry or have experienced uh, firsthand. We've got people that have turned from farmers to deep tech entrepreneurs that have come through, which is really awesome. Yeah, amazing. That sounds really exciting. And 23 years, it sounds like a lot, but I think in this space, it's also not a lot, but it sounds like a lot has been achieved. And I really like the analogy you said, based on the space, the home of the last industrial revolution and that of the future. And also the analogy of the chicken, I think, is, is very relevant. We always use the term incubator, but don't always realize maybe where it comes from. 
Yeah, it's really interesting, right? That term incubator, a lot of people actually translate that to a program and they're like, there's these 12 weeks and we do this. And I'm like, that's not what an incubator is because some of these people have been here 12 years mm. and we've literally helped them grow from 40 people to 100 and something. Um, we've got They've got half a foot out the door at that point because I won't give them the whole building and I won't allow them to expand. But an incubator, when you really think about what it is, it provides life and nourishment mm-hmm. and the perfect conditions to protect something at its most vulnerable stage until it's born. And then even once it's born, it helps protect it and nurture it until it is actually capable of going outside and surviving on its own to the best of intents. And then really good incubators, what they do is they never really let them go to the wild. They still have a little safety net, if you think about it, where they can come home at night. And if you think about free range chickens, they're not really free range fully. They come home and they roost at night and they have that safety and that protection of an environment. And so we talk about with our residents, they graduate out of here, but they never really check out and never really leave. And they still have our phone number and they still know where we are and they walk in the door and they have that support and that network to continue to build relationships and to actually recycle talent through the organizations, but to continue to be part of that community. And the best ones come back and they actually teach into that community. So it's much like our our DNA of we've come full cycle from being the place where the engines were put into the the trains. We've come full cycle to they're actually the engine that now goes into the next train that's getting built, which is really cool. Great. You mentioned a few different types of companies, types of sectors. You also mentioned that they could stay with you for different periods of time. How do you decide which startups to work with or to support? Is there a process or is it based on the, the idea Yeah, so it's a great question. And I I would love to give somebody the formula and say, this is it. But the reality is it's quite different and it depends on the sector and it depends on the timing. But there's a couple of key things that we look at, right? We really look at what is the problem, the fundamental problem they're trying to solve? And is that a big problem? Because if it's a problem for 100 people, the reality is it's going to be very difficult to make a business case for that. And it's going to be very difficult to help them raise money or find an investment pool for that, most likely. Is the problem they're trying to solve big? Is it ambitious? Is the market interested in it. The second thing we look at is, are they coachable? Are they willing to grow? Do they care more about solving the problem than they care about their own ego in it? And that's a really hard one to say to people because so many people want to become founders and they want to become CEOs. And I always say, why do you want to do that? What is it that you're really interested in about being a founder and a CEO? Because it's a miserable journey. It's really hard. You're going to have very high highs and incredibly low lows. It's absolutely lonely at the best of times. And it's tough. So why do you want to become a founder and a CEO? And when the answer is that they're obsessed by the problem and like somebody needs to bring this to market and I just cannot let go of this problem, then they're the right person because at the right time, they will generally recognize whether they have the skill set to be the CEO on an ongoing basis or not. And so they're the kind of conversations that you have quite regularly with people. And when they are obsessed about the problem, they're happy to stay in the business, but they're actually generally happy to move out of that role if they're yeah. not interested or don't want to develop the skill sets to be that CEO of a scaling business. And I think the third thing we really look for, and that's that coachability, the third thing we really look for is what science and engineering do they have underneath the hood, right? Do they have some protectable IP or do they have the ability to build on some protectable IP? Because if they don't have that 
at the outset. The journey is really long, particularly if you think about health and if you think about diagnostics or therapeutics, that is a massively hard market to crack into and make a profitable business out of. So they have to have something in that vein and be able to really connect them and see how that we can take them on the journey. The other thing that we do is we stop focusing on them and we focus on ourselves and we go, are we the right ones to help them? And that's a really different thing. I don't think a lot of incubators and accelerators actually ask that question of themselves. I think they always go, we've got this thing, plug in, and it looks like this, and it's very fixed. And we sit there and go, are we the right ones? Or is there somebody else that would be better placed for them? Because if our vision and our mission is about creating the deep tech future for Australia and actually building businesses, we need to know and recognize our part, but we also need to know and recognize everybody else in the ecosystem's part and play really well with them and say, we think you'd be better going here and here's why. And let us make that introduction to to this organization or this place for you, because they're going to be the right people to help you. And we're not that, but we love what you doing and we want to support you. And so that's a very different philosophy from a lot of organizations out there who really do look on at what's in it for me. And we yeah. sit there and we're very focused on, are we the right people to help right now for mm. them? Yeah. Those are the kinds of ways that we look about it. And every time, depending on what that answer is for each different organization that we're working with, that changes the outcome of how we work together and whether we work together or not too. It really sounds like a partnership. Not, not like we're entering, going through this process and then we leave again, but it's very much ongoing and, and mutually beneficial, really trying to add value. Yeah, we really do try and do that. And I think that's a really interesting way of framing it. And I think so often in this sector with some of the actors that we you intersect with, they're all looking on an outcome from their perspective. Venture capitalists need a return on their mm-hmm. investment and that's okay. Universities need a certain outcome for what they need. Industry partners need a certain outcome. And I think the best partnerships are when you have an overarching vision that you share and there's a win on both sides of the equation. And when you have that, you can actually make it work. If it's a lopsided equation, it tends to be really hard and you struggle with mm-hmm. how do you actually work together on a day-to-day basis to achieve that collective vision and that collective win. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned the ecosystem or, or connecting with others in the ecosystem. I'm curious to what extent, if at all, do you work with universities and any insights uh, you've had through your experiences around what universities might be doing to better support and nurture some of these ideas and startups that could be coming out of that environment. I'm going to answer with the Australian context first because it is unique to the Mm -hmm. rest of the world a little bit, but I think there's some truths between the two, so I might try and pull those out for you as well. So in the Australian context, we work very closely with quite a lot of universities. We're actually owned by four universities, um, but we don't work exclusively for them and we certainly don't have exclusively startups in our incubators that are spin-outs from them. Mm -hmm. So we actually work with universities across Australia and also depending on the partnerships and collaborations and industry partners that we're working for across the world. And what I would say in the Australian context, I think is really powerful. And from the data that we've seen over the 23 years is two things that I think are really interesting observation is that at any given time in our incubator, only 23 to 24% of the companies are direct spin outs from a university. 
So the vast majority are actually coming from elsewhere. And the founders, when we know, when we look at where they're coming from, they're people with industry experience and they tend to become frustrated by something and so frustrated that they've left to go and do it. They're not in even industry spin outs. And this data actually rings true too from a report that we're working on at the moment for Tech 23, which is a deep tech festival that we've taken over in Australia. And in the 120 applicants we had last year, we had a similar sort of metric, I think 11 applications were direct spin-outs from universities. Now, before anybody goes, oh, woe is me in Australia, universities don't spin out enough businesses, it's actually not bad news. What it does do is it busts a myth about this linear nature of deep tech businesses and where they come from. And I would say it holds quite true around the world, but in a different to a different volume and a percentage in each country, depending on what those university environments are like and what their IP agreements are like and how they're fundamentally funded as, as business businesses of universities. But the thing that's really cool that we see, and we see this from the data of our residents over 23 years, but we also see it from Tech 23, is every single one of our resident companies has partnerships. And they have partnerships with industry, they have partnerships with universities. And so those things are for contracted research, they're for collaborative projects, their industry-based PhDs that they're funding those students to go through. They have interns coming in and doing paid internships. So the relationship that all of our businesses have with universities is so much richer than this sort of linear pathway. And those things are much more beneficial to both sides because they actually go for multiple years. So in the case of, I think about one of our, our resident companies right now, Rux, who's working on a new materials solution for hydrogen storage, they have, I can't even tell you how many partnerships with universities they have right now, because every time I see them, there's something else that they've worked with or collaborated on, or they're in a joint project on. And so they have this really rich ecosystem of, of researchers that they yeah. collaborate with in Australia, but also globally. And then the pipeline of people that are going to come and work for them are coming out of those universities. So I think there's a role for universities. There's absolutely a fundamental role that universities need to play and should play in, in, in deep tech. But I think when we limit that conversation and the focus to being direct spin outs, we actually limit, we fail to recognize the bigger picture and the greater opportunity where they're actually contributing on a day-to-day basis in a really rich way. And so for me, that's the thing that we need to, in Australia, we need to unpack that narrative and talk about it a lot more. And that fundamental research that Australian universities get funded by the government to do and and focus on can lead to an opportunity for deep tech, but not necessarily. And I don't think that we should be driving fundamental research with a goal of commercialization. I think what we should be driving is collaborations with the goal of commercialization, because then we get the best of both worlds. We get this deep expertise and we get this deep capability in actually building businesses. And that's a beautiful, when you get that, that's a beautiful marriage. That's a really great relationship that that carries forward for, for decades. Yeah, exactly. Really great to hear that. And I think it resonates a lot with generally how universities operate and also that connection with talent, because I know uh, at least uh, in Europe, and I imagine it's the same in Australia, there's a shortage of talent, especially in the deep tech space and a lot of ideas around how can we bridge that gap. Maybe building on that, uh, I'd like to understand just uh, a little bit around generally commercialization and partnerships. There's a lot of challenges uh, involved and sometimes the translation from lab to market can take a really long time. Are there any maybe unique challenges that you've observed in the deep tech space that could resonate with others and maybe take on board as they're working in these areas? 
Yeah, I think there's some common challenges. And I think this is where putting on a very pragmatic commercial mindset helps you to navigate it. So I think one of the things that we see all the time is that deep tech founders typically underestimate the amount of refactoring, for want of a better word, that they're going to have to do in their product development or as they go from lab to market. So every time you take a prototype or you take what you think you've discovered and you scale it for 10 people, 100 people, 50 people, every piece of refactoring that you do for that, everything breaks. The science breaks, the engineering breaks, the optimization breaks, the cost break, everything breaks. So everything is harder than they think. And everything takes longer than people think. And so we just need to be realistic about it. And I've coached so many deep tech founders and I, I'm just laughing in, in it a little bit because I've got a call later with one who I'm working with at the moment. And the conversation last week, she was like, we scaled this from this to this and everything broke. And I just, I was smiling and laughing. She goes, I know you're going to tell you, I told you. And I was like, look, it's normal. And and she was worried and freaking out. I'm like, this is normal. Now you just have to fix it for this next scale. And that's really hard when you're taking something to market and you're talking turning it into an actual usable product that can meet the regulatory requirements and your customers' needs and be easily adopted and implemented in whatever place they need it be, whether it's in a farm or in a hospital or in space, that is going to take time and it is just going to keep breaking. So really just being pragmatic about that and knowing that and just actually listening to your coaches that will tell you that's going to happen. It's okay. And it's normal. It's absolutely normal right. is really important. I think the second thing that, that we find deep tech founders often underestimate is the cost of that as well. You really have to understand where you're going to get your money from and don't just think about your first round, but think about what it's going to take over time and understand what your strategy is to get to that place and what non-dilutive capital can you take? What dilutive capital are you going to take? How do you get strategic investors around you who are not just going to put in money, but are going to unlock customers for you and unlock collaboration opportunities? Because that's a really big piece of the thinking about it. So it's a very commercial mindset about thinking about money. I would say for every scientist and engineering founder out there, please go and do a basic bookkeeping course and financial course. You do need to understand your books and you do need to understand cash flow. And really that's something that makes you different if you can understand that. And I know that sounds simple and it sounds so easy, but so many people really wait until the last minute and they're like, I'm going to run out of money in two months and now I need to raise. And I'm like, Raising can take a year, especially in the current environment. So really getting a handle on that and going, do I want to move from fundraising to fundraising or am I going to try and raise enough? And, and having a strategy around that and really thinking that through, I think is important. I think the other thing I would say deep tech founders religiously do is forget about who their customer is and really understanding who their customer is. So if you're in health, yes, you might be looking at patient outcomes, but is the customer government? Is it the hospital? Is it the surgeon? Is it the practitioner? Who is the person who's actually going to pay for it? Is it the insurance provider? Really understanding who your customer is in every context is important and and not waiting until you've got what you think is the perfect product to validate them with that, building in partnership with them, having that paid trial early so you really understand what adoption is going to take and focusing on those friction points of adoption, not the perfect product that's going to have 27 features, but the thing that just solves the one big pain point they have. You have to be really pragmatic. And so sometimes that translation from 
being really wanting to be blue sky and discovery into I just need to get this one thing done because that's how they're going to pay me money for. That real tension is it's a leap. And so you need to surround yourself with people that will keep you honest and keep you focused. So my gosh, there's so many things, but they're probably (laughs) the ones that I find myself repeating often to founders as I work with them and talk to them. They're interesting challenges. And while, of course, you talk about that commercial focus, a lot of them remind me of some fundamental issues and challenges that researchers deal with. They have to be resilient because I remember from my time in the lab, you you try something that was working, suddenly it doesn't work anymore. And you have to try to figure out why it didn't work. And then you're looking for funding. Of course, it's different. But uh, I think often we forget how similar some of the processes that researchers go through are to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial thinking. I really like that. I, ri- I really like the way that you framed that because I think sometimes they think it's going to be different. Now I'm going to move into the commercial context and that's going to be the easy bit. I've done the hard bit. The hard bit was the science. The hard bit was the discovery. I'm like, oh no, now the really hard bit comes, right? This is actually much harder because there isn't a framework and no one has to buy your product. No one has to do this. So the reality is if you're not close to your market and you're not really going on that journey with them, especially if you're building something for a new market, like if you're building a new market, you actually have to build that ecosystem and build the entire sort of environment in which you're going to sell something to somebody. And so you really can't forget about that. And I think people underestimate how hard that is. And you're right, they forget that they're resilient, but you need to learn to be resilient in a different context. And yeah. if I can if I can give you the metaphor from what I see, it's like people who do strength training and then go to a Pilates class and they're like, I'm really strong. And then they go to a reformer Pilates class and oh my God, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And it's because it, yeah, different you're strong, muscles. but yeah. different muscles, right? Yeah. So it's the same sort of thing. You're using a different muscle group and experience group of how do you actually demonstrate and enact that resilience and what do you enact it in so yeah so there's hope there's hope for those researchers to to develop that (laughs) speaking of hope and uh, maybe looking a bit to the future I'd like to take the last few minutes and just understand a bit more what are your thoughts on the future or emerging technologies trends in the deep tech uh, space but maybe specifically within Australia how do you see the future playing out in Australia the role Cicada Innovations is playing to help make Australia a leader in this field. Does Australia have a competitive advantage in specific areas? Can it be doing something differently? It's a very big question. but I'm I'm glad you recognize how big it is. I was like, oh, so a nice, easy question to finish. I think there's a couple of things. I think Australia's got incredible strengths, and I think we need to get really realistic about them. And some of our strengths are not just in specific disciplines, right? We know that we've got a great strength in quantum right now. We've got incredible capabilities in that. We actually have fundamental great strengths in research and machine intelligence too. I remember back in my Google days, we hired a lot of people out of our universities here into the engineering team. There's a lot of fundamental strengths there. We've got incredible strengths in automation and robotics. And part of that is deployed into the mining and the infrastructure there. So we have skills. We've got skills in biotech. We've got that. What I think we have, which is often not recognized, is we are so far away from everywhere. You really have to have a level of resilience to build a business in this country that I think is parallel to no one else in the world. Like it is 
hard. It is harder to raise capital. It is harder to persevere. The population size means you have to be global from day one. No one is in our time zone that you're selling to most of the time. They always happen to be in a wrong time zone. And if you travel to them, it's a different customer in a different time zone somewhere else. So there's these fundamental challenges that build a resilience that if you can do it here, you can actually build a thriving global business. And I think we need to harness that a little bit. I think the other asset that we have in Australia is particularly when we think about digital capabilities and software-based technologies, we are a very literate company in the sense that we are digitally literate country and we are very good at adoption. We love trying new things, new tech. We will buy it. We love the latest shiny. We love the latest shiny in cars. Like we want it all. We adopt it really fast. So we're really good as a test market for things. So actually for deep tech companies that are not Australian born, but are looking to trial things, we're incredible for that. We mm. also have some of the best clinical trial infrastructure in Australia. So our clinical trials are par- like we've got great diverse population sizes, which means you can have an incredibly successful clinical trial in Australia. So that ability to be a first point of launch for deep tech businesses and to actually think about housing themselves here, I think is really good. We have an incredible lifestyle. So I think we're really good at giving people that great balance between building something that is, and because we're not afraid to get on a plane and travel forever, we're where we have no fear of building a global business from where we're at. So I think there's a lot of assets. I think where we also need to play and to admit our bench strength is we're really good in product in various pieces of a supply chain. We don't need to do everything. So we've got incredible capabilities in this country in semiconductor design. And people don't know about it. We're actually got world leaders here. Do we do the processing here? Do we build them here? No, we're building them elsewhere. But if we're architecting and doing all the design work here, which you can do, and you can actually do all of that prototyping here, there's incredible facilities for that. That is an incredible strength. And we we yeah. have that in new materials. We have that in a whole bunch of areas. And so I think there's an opportunity to really shine a spotlight on that. And where we need to get better at is connecting those capabilities to the global marketplace. And maybe we can be the supply chain marketplace of these unique capabilities and skills to the world, but actually doing those things and building them here on the architecture and the infrastructure that we have. And that's exciting. Like it's it's supply chains are sexy and fun. They're hard, but they're actually really interesting. And what I like about them is they're like the Wi-Fi example, right? We're known for inventing Wi-Fi, but it's not Wi-Fi itself that's cool. It's what it's enabled and what people have built on top of it. So what else can we build that people build on top of it that actually makes a fundamental difference in the world and improves human health and well-being and planetary health and solves some of the pressing problems that we're seeing? And that's where I think we should and can play a bigger role for everybody. Yes, excellent. We started by talking about physical space where Cicada's based and now we've ended with more the the, the ecosystem, building those connections, finding the opportunities. I'm uh, just conscious of time. Uh, I think we could, I don't know uh, how you feel, but I could probably stay another uh, (laughs) half an hour. But Saliana, really want to thank you for your time and a very enjoyable discussion. And yes, Sally, any final words from your end? No, I just say to everybody, look, just remember you're not alone and be part of a community, be part of many communities because it takes a village to do this stuff and don't be alone when you're doing it because everyone needs somebody else around them to help them cheer them on and to lift them up when they need lifting up. And to tell the truth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely, to tell the truth, to give you some tough love. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Thank you again so much and I hope you have a great rest of your day. 
Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's discussion. Follow UIAN on LinkedIn, and if you're enjoying our podcasts, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review in your podcast platform of choice to help other people find this content too.